This episode of The Bowery Boys is brought to you by our upcoming show, The Bowery Boys Halloween Spooktacular at Joe's Pub. Yes, we've still got some seats left on October 27th. There's two shows, 4.30 and 7, and of course, one Halloween show at 7 p.m. So join us. We have a great new lineup of ghost stories that we are itching to tell. For tickets, go to the Joe's Pub website at publictheater.org. And we'll see you there. And that's not the only place to get your spook on with us. We also have a ghost walk through NoHo happening on Saturday, October 12th. Tour some of our favorite ghost stories in the NoHo and East Village and Greenwich Village neighborhoods, and then wind up in a an undisclosed location for a a cocktail with with us. So many spirits await. <laughs> Get your ticket today at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Episode 299 of The Bowery Boys. Brooklyn Heights Part 2. The Promenade. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. This is part two of our show on the history of Brooklyn Heights. Now, in this show, we will spend most of our time in the 20th century. You'll hear some tales of, let's see, bohemians, preservationists, even some Jehovah's Witnesses. And of course, a lot of Robert Moses mixed in just for good measure. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, he's going to play a central role in many of the things that we're going to talk about. A little less central than he was hoping for. That's but we'll, too, get, yes. we'll get to that in a bit. In the first episode, we saw, you know, this rural land, today's Brooklyn Heights, with great views over lower Manhattan. We saw how it transformed into an elegant bedroom community, uh, mostly for affluent families. And many of whom had somebody um, in the family who was working in New York City across the river. Now, this could only happen because of the launch of a regular steam ferry service in 1814 between the area of today's Fulton Landing, which you can still visit as part of Brooklyn Bridge Park, Mm -hmm. and today's South Street Seaport. And throughout the 19th century, then, this neighborhood, you know, pretty much fully developed and prospered, I would say. You know, most, mm-hmm. of the, most of the first houses that were built were simpler in the northern parts of the Heights, as we talked about in that first show. And many of those were built on land that had been owned by my favorite boy band duo, the <laughs> Hicks Brothers. And by the way, if you live in Brooklyn and you have to walk on Hicks Street at any mm-hmm. point, hopefully uh, we've changed your perception of that street <laughs> going forward on this show. I'm mm- pretty sure they recorded <laughs> Mbop. <laughs> Okay, so meanwhile, south of here was the land owned by Hezekiah Pierpont and his family. And then by the 1830s and 40s, they began parceling off these larger lots and then, of course, setting high standards for homes that could be constructed, creating an elite environment. And on many of these streets today, you can see beautiful townhouses that exemplify the most popular architectural styles of the mid and late 19th century. You've Mm -hmm. got got your Greek Revival, you've got your Italianate, Victorian Gothic, Romanesque. And those styles, of course, would factor into today's show in a very significant way. 
But it wasn't that they were just constructing elegant homes here. You know, they were also founding social clubs, cultural institutions that are still around today, uh, like the local library, uh, charities, the Long Island Historical Society, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and many others, including a, a notable list of churches. And all of this was happening while Brooklyn, the city of Brooklyn, was rapidly growing and stretching further into Kings County and the neighborhood just east of Brooklyn Heights, which of course today we call downtown Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. was the kind of civic district and was the home to Brooklyn City Hall. So where we left you at the end of the last show then was into this whole mix in 1883, the borough welcomed the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, an event, Greg, that was celebrated, in fact, on Montague Street at the Brooklyn Academy of Music with a big, you know, opening Um, shindig. A big gala. Yeah. So that's where we wound up. So we have the Brooklyn Bridge, which is going to change both New York, the cities of New York and Brooklyn. What are the specific changes that happen in the immediate aftermath of its opening in 1883? Well, the biggest change really happens about a decade later, of course, with <laughs> the biggest change to, to affect Brooklyn in general. So let's just start with the really big picture thing. Mm-hmm. That is, of course, the event that took place on January 1st, 1898, when Brooklyn ceased to be the city of Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and became the borough of Brooklyn, the consolidation of greater New York. That brought with it, you know, all the the bureaucratic, the the (laughs) technocratic changes that came with the reshuffling of the government. You know, City Hall became Borough Hall. Mm -hmm. Brooklyn's mayor became the borough president. You know, there were those kinds of changes. And meanwhile, the population of Brooklyn has grown so drastically and rapidly. Oh, if you look at 1880, okay, Brooklyn was home to about 600,000 people when we left off the story. Mm -hmm. By 1900, 20 years later, it was home to 1.16 million. And then 20 years after that, in 1920, 2 million people. So within the span, the short span of 40 years, Brooklyn's population had more than tripled And let me tell you, listener, all of those new people were not living in Brooklyn Heights. (laughs) No, not at all, because now they could travel far and wide, well into the entire borough, which is now coterminous with Kings County, and would soon have many more bridges to travel over. Right. And they could travel over those bridges or even get to those bridges on the new elevated railroads that Mm -hmm. would go up in the 1880s. We discussed this in our Downtown Brooklyn show. But by the late 19th century, Downtown Brooklyn had become crisscrossed, you know, with various elevated railways and street trams. And those were bringing these new residents who lived farther afield into Downtown Brooklyn to do their shopping, to go to the new department stores that were opening, or to transfer at the Sand Street Station, which was located near Brooklyn Bridge, onto another street tram that went over the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm -hmm. You know, it also sort of pushed the commercial hub away from Brooklyn Heights, you know, because of all Mm -hmm. this activity, into downtown Brooklyn, mostly along Fulton Street, where Fulton Street extended past City Hall, or shall I say, Borough Hall. And then just a few years later, after consolidation... You had the opening of the very first subway in Manhattan in Mm -hmm. 1904, and that would soon expand into Brooklyn as well. And that would only help supercharge this population explosion as well. 
if the elevated rail was easy, now the subway that extended into Brooklyn by 1908 made it only easier for people to live and work in Brooklyn. Um, that first stop, by the way, in 1908 in Brooklyn was today's 4-5 stop at Borough Hall. Now, what I understand about the residents of Brooklyn Heights up to this point, Uh-oh. that maybe some in that community would not exactly be thrilled that Brooklyn is filled with all these brand new residents from New York and from other places. Perhaps you're talking about the old timers that were that <laughs> yes. were pretty happy to have had this rather secluded although well-connected by a steam ferry Mm -hmm. neighborhood up here on the Heights. And suddenly, especially, you know, once those subways are opening, people from all over the city are easily accessing their neighborhood. And as you'll talk about, in the next decade or two, more lines would open up in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, It almost makes you feel kind of sorry for that little old, like, rusty ferry Mm. (laughs) steaming along down there at the foot of Brooklyn Heights. Well, those ferries, you know, they were no longer needed and they would go out of business. Ironically, they were the very thing that had made this neighborhood possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and now they would just sort of fade away. So Brooklyn Heights is attempting to modernize mm-hmm. in some ways, right, though? Whether it wants to or not. Right. So it's still a destination for, for lovely homes, I'm assuming? Yeah. By the 1880s, there were new arrivals. You know, new apartment buildings were sprouting up. They had become... Acceptable. You know, they become mm-hmm. more in vogue and acceptable, not just here, but in other new neighborhoods in Brooklyn and obviously over in Manhattan as well. Apartment buildings would go up on Montague and on other streets near it, replacing old homes. And we're talking about both luxurious apartment buildings, but also middle class apartments as well. Well, by this point, like say around the 1890s, right, Mm -hmm. there are other destinations for people of wealth in Brooklyn. There are other wealthy neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Like Park Slope, uh, Prospect Heights, Bedford-Stuyvesant. These were new neighborhoods where people were building elegant homes. And increasingly into the early 20th century, those homes could also accommodate those newfangled automobiles. Oh, of course. And let us not forget, since we're talking apartments here, that it was rather fashionable during this period to also live in a hotel or a residential hotel. Yeah, because also all those old homes were very expensive to run, you know, and and to keep staffed. I mean, Greg, the staffing costs alone, you know, <laughs> just, just don't you just feel so sorry for them? Look, I've seen Downton Abbey. Just that stuff starts dwindling pretty soon. It's just the cook in the kitchen by who's, herself. Who's going to dust all the cutlery? I don't even know which bell chain to pull. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, hotels would start opening all over the Heights. And much like the apartment buildings, they were taking the place of these old homes. And they weren't just serving these sort of long-term guests uh, that you're mentioning, but also transient guests. These were actually functional short-term stay hotels as well. There was the St. George Hotel that opened on Clark Street in 1885, and it was named after St. George's Tavern, uh, which had occupied that same spot during the Revolutionary War. Ooh, has a 18th century connection. Yeah, and a British loyalist (laughs) connection. The St. George we know today is a behemoth. You know, it, it grew in the 1890s, and then it became much larger in the 1920s when they put on that huge tower. For a while, it, it actually became the largest hotel in New York City with over 2,600 rooms and the largest ballroom in New York City. And that's down on 
Clark Street, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's not even on that main street of Brooklyn Heights that we talked about, Montague Street. Right, Montague was becoming the main street, but Montague had its own hotels. There was a Hotel Bossert, which had been founded by Louis Bossert at the corner of Montague and Hicks Street. Now, that structure, which still stands today, is all dolled up in the Italian Renaissance revival style. It is much fancier than that St. George's Hotel, Mm -hmm. you know, the the look of it. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle called it the Waldorf Astoria of Brooklyn. The the rooftop even had this sort of luxurious restaurant on two floors called the Marine Roof. And you said that opened in 1913? Yes, and had actually taken the spot of an earlier hotel on that same location, the Hotel Pierpont, which had opened in 1853. Apparently, I haven't been able to totally verify this, but apparently Tom Thumb and his new bride, Lavinia, stayed <laughs> stayed at the Pierpont after their marriage. Well, that must have been a shocking sight for those old <laughs> elite families <laughs> of Brooklyn Heights. I'm so. sure they didn't know what to think. But by the way, the, the hotels were not all so fancy. There were some more like, you know, working class hotels located, unsurprisingly, back up in the northern section of the Heights up, you know, near the docks and things. So Montague was this destination of like the you know the Brooklyn Academy of Music was here. There were these other like storied institutions, but it seems now that maybe it's changing a little bit. Now we have some hotels here. What are, what's the feeling of Montague Street? Well, remember in the last show how I mentioned that Montague had started out pretty residential. Mm-hmm. You know, even underdeveloped. The the northern side of many of the blocks were just kind of like gardens for you mm-hmm. know lovely homes over on Pierpont. Well, by this period, yes, it's becoming much more built up and also much more commercial. In fact, the eastern end of Montague was becoming more of a kind of banking hub, sort of like a mini Wall Street. You know, there was clearly a lot of money in Brooklyn Heights. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So banks were constructing lovely headquarters and branches in those blocks of Montague and also on Court Street. One that I wanted to mention that's still around today that you and I just visited Mm -hmm. a few days ago, and it's so beautiful, started out as the Brooklyn Trust Company. It was built in 1915 at the northeast corner of Clinton and Montague. According to Clay Lancaster, our favorite author in his book, Old Brooklyn Heights, America's First Suburb, the building is neoclassical. And it resembles, quote, an Italian Renaissance palazzo with rusticated walls, massive arched windows, exquisitely tooled gray marble, and a vast barrel vaulted hall richly ornamented with a coffered ceiling. It's a breathtaking building, and it manages to remain in the banking world. It's a, a Chase Bank now inhabits it. In fact, the whole street is still kind of considered a bank row. There's several banks in this, uh, just in this one area. So stop into the bank. Um, if this is, We're not underwritten by Chase in any way, but stop into that location if you have a chance when you're visiting. Now, on the other side of the street, though, we talked about the Brooklyn Academy of Music yes. constructing their, their lovely theater on Montague in 1861. But 42 years later, on November 30th, 1903, the Brooklyn Academy of Music went up in flames. It took up the whole front page of that afternoon's Brooklyn Daily Eagle with a headline, Fire Destroys the Academy, a few standing walls in a mass of ruins where historic structures stood. Quote, a fire that completely destroyed Brooklyn's most historic theater, the Academy of Music on Montague Street, 
broke out a few minutes before 9 o'clock this morning. The flames spread rapidly, and in an hour and a half, the fire had attained its height and had practically burned itself out. For the first hour of its progress, the downtown portion of Brooklyn was in commotion. Businesses came to a standstill, and a host of badly frightened folk watched the big pillar of flames and black smoke that rose above the housetops in the vicinity of Borough Hall. Amazingly, nobody was killed in this event, although, of course, you know, the cultural heart of the neighborhood had been had been lost. Yeah, this is a major tragedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to imagine that, like, this was one of the most esteemed institutions, and it's now gone. Mm-hmm. So how did they rebuild from this? Well, as they had done years, you know, decades before for its initial construction, money was raised to rebuild. But this time, Greg, and this is notable for the history of the neighborhood, this time they chose to rebuild not here in Brooklyn Heights, but something more central closer to the heart of the new heart of the borough, over on Lafayette Avenue. Now, you alluded to something earlier about the kind of state of the neighborhood. And so by like 1910, this neighborhood has houses that are like 90 years old. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are a few older buildings in Brooklyn overall today, but there is no neighborhood or collection of buildings mm-hmm. older in Brooklyn than Brooklyn Heights. And so with this expanse of a five-borough city and anticipating that ever-steady advancing that is now happening throughout the whole borough, many of those who lived in this community, who had lived there for decades, were concerned about being left out of kind of the riches of growth here. And this is happening in New York, too, with, with older communities. And in just like those communities, we see here the formation of the very first neighborhood association. Like an advocacy group. Yes. A neighborhood ad- – one, today I can think of a lot of advocacy groups who are working on preservation efforts. Yeah. You know, especially in that neighborhood. Were they concerned already in the early 20th century with preserving the historic character of the neighborhood? Well, it's preservation of a different kind, I would have to say. You know, keep in mind that these are cries from the older families that live in Brooklyn Heights, those who are like, are trying to retain or keep that sort of class identity preserved in the neighborhood, but also to keep the neighborhood vital and connected with the rest of the city. You had slowly over the decades here, and it will continue into the 20th century, the older residents moving out and the middle class moving in. And moving into these new apartment buildings or even into these residential hotels. I mean, that's changing the character of the neighborhood. So I can imagine then that some of these neighbors Mm -hmm. um, who lived in those existing 19th century elegant homes weren't really thrilled about that transition. No, no. So in 1910, the Brooklyn Heights Association was formed. The New York Times actually covered its formation in February of 1910. And I just have to read a quote from this because these are some melodramatic people. (laughs) Okay. Okay. From the vice president. You're not going to get, we're not going to get hate mail from this. Oh, no, no, no. This is, I think we can laugh along with this. Okay. This is from the vice president of the Heights Association, uh, Reverend Newell Dwight Hillis, quote. So they're kind of bemoaning the fact that at this point in 1910, there's not a a subway station for those in Brooklyn Heights. You have to walk all the way over to the Borough Hall. Yes. 
And yet, many in this community have supported the subway and, of course, were wealth, very wealthy and in certain ways even helped fund it. Quote, we have been more than generous and self-sacrificing. We have aided in the matter of the Fourth Avenue subway, which tends to divert residents from our part of the city. We have helped everyone but ourselves. But I say to you that not even the Bible requires us to love Flatbush more than the Heights. Our Bringing uh, the Bible into this. Our, our rich move away and our young find locations elsewhere. Our creed has been that everybody's better than ourselves. We have been actuated by an excess of Christian zeal. We have also been too dignified and too respectable. Let us now get up and do some shouting. I would really love to hear the Reverend Hillis do some shouting, Greg. (laughs) But you can imagine that, I guess, the residents felt like they had spent so many decades you know, building churches and fine cultural institutions to to bring culture and spiritual guidance to the masses, you know, that they had neglected to think about their own best interests. They considered themselves a bedrock of society. Well, they here. were located on a lot of rocks. <laughs> on a lot of bedrock, actually. And, and I, I should stress that even until recent years here, Brooklyn Heights is one of the New York New York City area's most religious communities. And I would say it is at this very moment, the moment of their formation in 1910, that we see a major personality shift from a class-based Protestant community to middle, working class, and even bohemian neighborhood, which I'll explain in a minute. I was wondering when we were going to get to the bohemians. <laughs> But back to the original Bohemian, Henry uh-huh. Ward Beecher, <laughs> well, <laughs> from the yeah, last show. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, the neighborhood has a long history of religious leadership. Yeah. Well, I should even mention that it's, it's around this time, mm-hmm. actually 1908, that the Watchtower Bible Society first buys property here in the area of Brooklyn Heights and some warehouses in the North Heights. Uh, they will, later in our story, make a very significant impact upon the neighborhood. And when you say the the Watchtower Bible Society... Yes, it's not a super group. It's not a superhero group. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're talking about the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes, which is a Christian denomination that formed in the 1870s, and they're famous for using printed material as part of their ministry. We'll talk a little bit more about them later. But back to the Bohemian script. Oh, yes. How, when did they come in? Well, surprisingly, it is largely because of a new subway station that finally opened in Brooklyn Heights. So the, the, the B line for Bohemian. The, the B. Now, actually, it's the the two three, but we could call it the Bohemian line. Uh, it opened in 1919, the Clark Street extension of the IRT, finally delivering subway service here to Brooklyn Heights of Clark and Henry in the St. George in the basement. Yeah, the two three train connecting Brooklyn not only with the Wall Street business area, which is important, but another neighborhood that would come to influence Brooklyn Heights, Greenwich Village. So as the older, wealthy, and even middle-class residents began moving out of this area, the housing stock, which is vacated, becomes more attractive to the bohemian set who could move here and then just jump on a train to go over to the village's coffee houses and speakeasies and salons. 
I guess they'd have to transfer, or they could walk down from 14th Street. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, the two three doesn't go to the village. I mean, it goes to 14th. No, it's, they'd have to. They'd have to walk down sh- Christopher Street. That's a one. That's a local. They'd have to transfer. But, I mean, now we're really into the nitty-gritty. <laughs> it's a little easier than an elevated railroad, let's just say. Absolute, absolutely. And how, co- how convenient <laughs> for the Bohemians. Well, in April of 1921, the New York Tribune did an entire spread on this phenomenon, a whole spread called Greenwich Village Moves to Brooklyn. Subhead, bobbed hair is growing where frizzies grew before. Sandals soon will patter up the Clark Street station stairs. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a wonderful article written by a woman named Hannah Mitchell about her experiences living on Columbia Heights. Um, in the article, she just she actually complains that there are too many villagers already moving to the neighborhood. Quote, two girls with short hair took the apartment under me. I couldn't help sneaking a look at the address from which their mail was forwarded. Greenwich Village. <laughs> it gets the horror. Yes. But, you know, it does make sense, obviously, that people who had been attracted to the small town village atmosphere um, of Greenwich Village would also find that same kind of atmosphere here in the tree-lined streets with the beautiful homes. Yeah. And then throughout the 1920s and 30s, many more writers and artists would move into the neighborhood. And for decades, this would actually be known as the Bohemian Quarter of Brooklyn. Isn't that an extraordinary transformation? And still sort of hard to consider today. Yeah, incredible. Now, as we learned from Hugh Ryan, author of When Brooklyn Was Queer, Mm -hmm. who we interviewed on our show, The Sippin' Julius, He even explains that there was a semblance of a gay and lesbian scene here in Brooklyn Heights. Probably with a lot of short hair. (laughs) So who were these bohemians? Any... Any big names, bold-faced names, page oh, I mean, six names? I can... mean, there's too many to count. That This is a great scavenger hunt for a day of walking around Brooklyn Heights. Just walk around and look for plaques because they're on many of the buildings, and they all identify just famous artists or painters that lived in these buildings. Like in the 1920s, you had... H.P. Lovecraft on Clinton Street, Hart Crane on Columbia Heights. In the 1930s, Thomas Wolfe on Montague Terrace. In the 50s, you had Arthur Miller, 155 Willow Street. Then you had Truman Capote over there on 70 Willow Street. Mm-hmm. What I love about many of these authors also wrote about their experiences living in those places in, those in yeah. Brooklyn Heights. They were so inspired by the neighborhood that oh, they yeah. often wrote about it. Capote wrote beautifully about Brooklyn Heights. Then, of course, Tom, the most legendary literary house, which is sadly no longer there. It was so fabulous that, of course, it can no longer exist today. 7 Middaw Street was nicknamed February House, which was an art commune that opened in 1940 and by many accounts was the best place to have a good time in all of Brooklyn. Are you just going to leave that there? (laughs) Well, I mean, imagine a party where you hung around with guests Carson McCullers, W.H. Auden, Gypsy Rose Lee and Benjamin Britten. What a dinner party. I mean, let's be honest. Why hasn't this been turned into a film or a TV show? This is prime material for a Netflix series. It's even got a great name. What The February House? February House. But to be clear, if we're in the 1940s and there's, you know, a somewhat active bohemian art scene in the mm-hmm. neighborhood, clearly something has changed, right? The real estate 
yeah. market has changed if the Bohemians have been able to m- afford moving in. Um, and I'm assuming then that the Great Depression of the 1930s had something to do with that. It certainly did. In fact, the Depression almost spells the end of Brooklyn Heights. In fact, in most of the things that I read, they referred to Brooklyn Heights in the 1940s as a slum. Again, an inconceivable way to describe that (laughs) neighborhood today. I mean, so during Prohibition, as these Bohemian groups moved in, you also had working class ethnic groups like the Italians moving in who were fleeing Manhattan's Italian quarter, which was quite overcrowded at this time. Today's Little Italy. Yeah. According to author Robert Furman, author of Brooklyn Heights, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of America's First Suburb, one-third of the houses by this time, by the Depression, were completely vacant and foreclosed upon. It's a miracle that those weren't demolished. I mean, considering, you know, the sort of slum clearance that would start heating up in the 30s and 40s. Well, many were destroyed, actually, east of old Fulton Street with the development of Cadman Plaza Mm. and that Brooklyn Civic District was built up then in the 1930s. Which we talked about in that downtown Brooklyn show. But before I move on, I just need to make mention of one moment of sports history. That is so you. (laughs) Not exactly, of course, first thing that pops into my mind when I think of Brooklyn Heights. No, no. But the, the Brooklyn Dodgers are around and beloved and naturally stayed in all of these local hotels as did visiting teams. By the 1950s, in fact, many of the Dodgers lived at the Hotel Bossert. Oh. Which is kind of amazing. And weren't there offices also here, down on Montague? Yes, down, just down the street on Montague and Court. The front office was located from 1938 to 1957, and it is here on August 28, 1945, that General Manager Branch Rickey signed Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers, breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. And then... Robinson would eventually go on to play with the Dodgers in 1947. For more on that history, we recorded a show last year on the history of Ebbets Field. But we still have not gotten into the big drama here. The biggest plans that are heading toward Brooklyn Heights. We'll get to that story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. 
But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, Greg, this brings us to probably well, one of the most famous aspects or features of Brooklyn Heights, the promenade or its official title, or at least at the beginning, the Esplanade. One of the most popular attractions in Brooklyn for thousands of people every weekend. Right. This is a five-block-long walk along Brooklyn Heights overlooking the East River and popular, as you said, because it offers these majestic views of Lower Manhattan. What's interesting about the promenade is it feels like it was built for Brooklyn Heights from the beginning. Yeah, because the view from Brooklyn Heights has always been sort of a selling point of that neighborhood, Mm -hmm. as we talked about in the first show. Yeah. And actually, early on, there were some little viewing areas at the end of those streets, you know, at the end of Pierpont, at the end of Montague, seating, you know, where you could look out. But they stopped there. You couldn't really walk anywhere. Many of those Columbia Heights residents didn't really want to share that view anyway. And their backyards were just unique in that they were part of that slope. In fact, they would slope all the way down to the warehouses on winter's day, children would literally slide down it, right? And down <laughs> yeah. top of the rooftops. And, you know, we haven't really spent much time talking about Furman Street, which is down below, b- below the, the rocky outcropping there. Um, Furman Street down below had warehouses on both sides, on the east side and on the west side. But on the east side there, some of the, the Columbia Heights residents built gardens atop those warehouses that were down below. And they, they quite liked having their backyards to themselves. Now, there had been earlier attempts, you know, all the way back to the days of Hezekiah Pierpont in the 1820s. You know, he tried to get some of his neighbors on Columbia Heights to sort of join up and create some kind of promenade. But again, they weren't interested in having people walking by their back windows. And then in the 1840s, even Walt Whitman would write about the need for some kind of a walk. He, he dreamed about having a walk up in Brooklyn Heights for strolling, as we talked about in the recent Whitman show. So it had been imagined in the 19th century. Right. But it's interesting then that it would have to wait until the 1940s, really, for it to come about. Well, if we're in the 1940s and it's a new construction, um, might Robert Moses be popping his head into the story here? Yeah, he was. He had been active building, you know, highways and, and parkways uh, by this time. 
By 1940, he was planning a larger expressway uh, that could finally connect Brooklyn and Queens. Or should I say, Greg, a Brooklyn-Queens expressway. (laughs) He would find funding for this project in 1940s from the federal government uh, because he would say that there was a military benefit to it, that the government should fund it because if necessary, it could move troops. Any excuse he could use to get money, federal money for things. But by the early 40s, and the plans were starting to come out about what shape this Brooklyn and Queens expressway would take. And how specifically would those plans affect this neighborhood? Well, let me read to you, Greg, from an oft-quoted article in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle from September 19, 1942. Headline, Plan for Express Highway Through Heights is Shocking. Brooklynites were shocked to learn that serious consideration was being given to a proposal to cut an express highway through the heart of the Heights. And then the article goes on to state that, you know, they were facing this traffic dilemma. Uh, the new expressway was coming, would be coming up Hick Street in Cobble Hill, and the planners, in this case Moses, wanted to get it over to the newly widened Tillery Street mm-hmm. in downtown. So what Moses was proposing here was to continue running the expressway north of Atlantic Avenue along Hick Street up to around Pierpont, and then hooking to the east to join into Tillery. Well, that kind of sounds like it's going to cut Brooklyn Heights completely in two with a massive highway just like speeding through it. Right. And that would have demolished many, you know, blocks of beautiful old homes and, yeah, chopped the neighborhood into two. The article continues, a, quote, more logical scheme would be to swing around by way of Furman Street along the river on an elevated structure similar to the West Side Highway. So that is ambitious. A lot to unpack there, I have to say. Yeah, there's a lot in that article because, um, first of all, let's just take note of the fact that nothing nothing was really mentioned about the folks living down in Cobble Hill, right? Mm -hmm. And the impending construction of what would become known as the ditch, You know, Mm -hmm. they obviously didn't have the political connections or the power really to do anything uh, to help save their neighborhood. You know, why? Why hadn't the highway been moved west of Hick Street? It Mm -hmm. could have been, you know, it could have been running along the waterfront over there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also shocking to us today because you see how the city was just imposing this kind of a plan. You know, the master builder was doing his thing with really minimal oversight. You know, it wasn't like they were having big public hearings and getting community board feedback on these plans. Oh, no, that's not a Moses way of doing things. Fortunately, he would have to contend with the Heights Association. But yeah, it's it's also interesting that in this article, the Eagle is exp- advocating for an elevated highway. It doesn't mention, however, that that elevated highway would be on two levels. And it certainly doesn't mention any kind of a promenade on mm-hmm. top of it. Did he hear any complaints or concerns from the community at all? Yes, and he scowled at all. Of course. (laughs) No, there was a public hearing, one public hearing, on March 10th, 1943. Um, And at that hearing, the city showed off plans to run the highway on one level directly behind the houses of Columbia Heights. So they had actually adapted their plan, and they they had dropped the Hicks extension north of Atlantic. And did they drop that because of the political pressure from the Heights Association? Well, a lot of this is kind of unclear to us today. It probably played into Moses' decision, 
But their official line was that they were moving the BQE farther west and along Furman Street because it would have been too expensive to acquire all of the land of those fine homes. Okay. The, the, the acquisition of land would have been just too pricey. And that's probably true as well. And then where did the idea come from to then take the highway, lower it, and then cover it? These are the great <laughs> unanswered questions. Henrik Krogius, who studied the promenade and wrote about its history for years, published in 2011 the definitive book on the subject called The Brooklyn Heights Promenade. He writes about two Brooklyn Heights Association leaders and, and who were neighbors on Columbia Heights, Roy Richardson and Fred Nittardi. And th these men spoke at the hearing, this one hearing in, in 1943. They spoke to Robert Moses, and they proposed to Moses to put the highway on two levels above Furman Street. And Nittardi actually asked that it be covered with a garden to replace the garden that would be taken away from him. Mm -hmm. But this sounds like he wanted to be some kind of a private garden, not for the public. Right. That's true. And it kind of makes sense because his private garden was being, you know, taken, it was his land. <laughs> taken away from him. <laughs> yeah. But alas, he would find out the next month in April of 1943 that the two-level highway would be topped by a public esplanade. Initially, it was planned for between Cranberry Street to around Grace Court. But it would turn out that it would extend from Remsen all the way up to Orange Street. Now, Nittardi, who was, according to Krogius, wasn't thrilled about losing his backyard garden. And many of those Brooklyn Heights neighbors were not thrilled at all about having thousands now of pedestrians and visitors passing by their back windows. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and to this day, people are marveling at these houses, which, of course, people still live in. Right, looking right in those windows. Uh -huh. So who ultimately came up with this idea? Well, as Krogius points out in his book, lots of people took credit for it, you know, once it had been opened and proved to be such a hit. But there are a lot of mysteries that still surround how it got pushed all the way over here, how it was built, you know, on two levels, cantilevered above Furman Street, mm -hmm. which was an engineering marvel, and how it was decided to top it with this wonderful esplanade. So when, when was work finally started here on the promenade? Well, construction was delayed because of the war, sure, mm -hmm. obviously. But in 1946, they started by ripping down the warehouses that were on the east side of Furman Street. They had to fill in Montague because, as you mentioned in the last show, Montague had sloped down to a ferry mm -hmm. landing that was down at the water. And four years later, on October 7th, 1950, the first section of the promenade opened, the section south of Clark Street. So it's a little bit like the High Line because they opened it like, you know, in different years. Like right. They progressed. Um, was there a big party? Oh, yeah. Complete with Robert Moses uh, and the borough president, John Cashmore, and many other notable people. Everybody agreed on one thing, Greg. Those views were spectacular. We have a clip of the opening ceremony, this audio courtesy of the New York City Municipal Archives. 
At one of the most beautiful sites anywhere in the world, which used to be in colonial days, the site of the residence known as the Chimneys, which George Washington occupied and which was connected with the historic Battle of Long Island and overlooking the magnificent New York Bay, one of the greatest panoramas in the world, the members of the Board of Estimate, the president of the Borough of Brooklyn and the Department of Parks today are dedicating the Brooklyn Heights Promenade above the shelves here on Furman Street, Brooklyn. And as this beautiful panorama unfolds before us in a view of the harbor and skyline of New York, I think it proves once and for all the truth of the old adage which says, if you want to see New York, you have to go to Brooklyn. And that was Borough President Cashmore speaking. So yeah, they understood that the views were spectacular. And they would celebrate once again the next year uh, in December of 1951 when the northern section of the Mm -hmm. promenade opened. So the promenade is now open, but the BQE is not yet opened underneath it. How peaceful. (laughs) Well, peaceful. I mean, there was a lot of work for a number of years going on to build that massive cantilevered Mm two-level expressway. But no, this portion of the BQE would not be completed until 1954, but there was a lot of work going on. Ironically, just two years after the promenade opened, it was already at risk of losing its prominent asset, its views, because those views were at risk of being blocked by the warehouses on the west side of Furman Street, on the Mm. west side, just Mm -hmm. to the west of the promenade. Because those warehouses had been about four stories tall. But in 1953, the Port Authority wanted to rip those down and build new massive warehouses down there. So those would have actually blocked the view. And, you know, there's a lot that went on. Public hearings about this. Robert Moses saying, well, nothing can, can't protect a view, you know. But they did find a way, using special zoning, to protect that view those warehouses on the west side of the street would then be demolished mm-hmm. in the late 1950s. Yeah. And in the 1970s, the city passed its very first special scenic district. Oh, here yeah. at the Brooklyn Promenade. Right, protecting the area west of the promenade from building up and blocking the view of that beautiful promenade. A special scenic view. Yes. Wow. Well, that special scenic view... Uh, a special scenic district. District, right. Sorry. Well, this district would now be enjoyed by a new type of resident moving into Brooklyn Heights here. Now, starting in the late 1940s, but ramping up with real visibility in the late 1950s, were who we call today the Brownstoners. These are urban professionals of some means who began looking at abandoned houses throughout the region, largely in these brownstone neighborhoods, these these elegant homes that have been chopped up into boarding houses and thought, well, why am I living in a cramped apartment building in Manhattan? Mm-hmm. I could own a house. You know, for the price of rent a year, you could actually buy a Brooklyn brownstone. This is especially appealing for those who work in downtown Manhattan. Right. You know, it's really easy to get there now. And in our Park Slope episode a couple years ago, we talked about this phenomenon happening, what, in by the 1960s? In the 60s in Park Slope, right. Mm-hmm. Here in Brooklyn Heights, it happens a little earlier. 
this is a very specific group. It's a largely white and white collar phenomenon here. Variously seen as like either the back to the city movement is how they described it. Today, we would see this as gentrification in many cases. Which Um, is a loaded term. Yeah. And we're seeing a pattern that I guess would become kind of familiar, right? Artists moving into a distressed neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And then people with some means coming in um, and populating that same neighborhood. This is not a new story and will play out again and again in many neighborhoods and in many Brooklyn neighborhoods in particular. Still today. Yeah. But this new blood would help in holding on to the neighborhood's historic integrity as it would drive a new surge to protect the area. After all, these are people moving here because they like these buildings for their historic, for their vintage aspect. And this is happening at a critical moment for architecture in Mm -hmm. New York City. I mean, by the early 1960s, the city has seen the demolition of beautiful, you know, masterpieces like Penn Station in 1963. Well, yeah, and so following Penn's demolition... The Landmarks Preservation Law was signed in 1965, followed by the formation of the Landmarks Preservation Commission, who would, of course, determine which buildings would be saved from the wrecking ball. That would seem rather complicated and kind of hard, especially in a neighborhood like Brooklyn Heights with so many historic buildings. How would you even decide what to protect? Well, fortunately, they have a guidepost of how to possibly handle this. Uh, And that would be guidelines from the Federal Department of Interior, who would list Brooklyn Heights as a national historic landmark, Brooklyn Heights, the whole place. Um, Later in 1966, that designation would be overseen by the National Register of Historic Places, which is what we have today. So the federal government was the first to classify Brooklyn Heights as a historic district. As a historic district, right. And by the way, the Brooklyn Heights Association had been at the forefront, both of getting that designation, of course, but even of getting the landmark law passed. Like, they wanted to make sure that any landmark protection would help their own neighborhood, would come back and help protect Brooklyn Heights. Now, the greatest advocate in Brooklyn Heights for uh, landmark protection was a man named Otis Pratt Pearsall and his wife, Nancy Pearsall. Now, Pearsall had great success in the late 1950s, challenging Robert Moses. He had that under his belt. Um, Some plans that Moses had for a housing development along Codman Plaza. This success catapulted into an idea for just historic preservation generally. On a district level. As opposed to building by building. Right, right. Now, this was influenced by Boston, actually, by a historic designation that the city put on Beacon Hill. Oh, a lovely neighborhood. Yes. It was Purcell who hired Clay Lancaster. So this book, Old Brooklyn Heights, which we've been referencing through these two episodes, he hired Lancaster to write this book in 1961 to document in exacting detail the historical qualities of all of these buildings. And they were also assisted, by the way, this effort was assisted in large part by the Municipal Arts Society, who were basically the driving force behind preservation up to this point in New York City history. And in Lancaster's book, it's interesting because he gives a history of old Brooklyn Heights, 
then it becomes like a catalog of all of these amazing townhouses, of mm-hmm. all of these amazing homes, and he goes street by street giving their history too. But he's really underscoring, you know, how all of these notable architectural styles that we've talked about are all present from the early 1820s yeah. up through, you know, later 19th century. They're all present and preserved in this neighborhood. Now, and that is notable. Yes. Thanks to their efforts, there's a real groundswell of support here now in the neighborhood. I greatly enjoyed reading about the buildup here, the the intense, almost fabulous groundswell of support, like soirees, rallies at the Hotel Bossert. There was even a gala at the St. George in, in support of this cause. We would have been so there. Oh, yes. The landmarks, had we been invited. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, the Landmarks Preservation Commission met in the fall of 1965 for the first time and designated their very first landmark, which was Astor Library, home of the Public Theater and Joe's Pub. Um, Congratulations, the, <laughs> Public. Yes, but the chairman also unveiled a proposed Brooklyn Heights Historic District on November 1st of 1965, which was greeted with great enthusiasm. From the New York Times, quote, a resident to the commission yesterday said, living in a 19th century community like Brooklyn Heights is preferable to anything the 20th century has to offer. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel that way about producing this podcast. That's true, yeah. Um, but was everybody who lived in Brooklyn Heights happy about this accomplishment? Well, there was there was one group that was really thriving at this point that was not necessarily on board. And that was, we were checking back in again here with the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society now. They'd started moving in at the start of the neighborhood and had and here by the 1960s had purchased several buildings, including their headquarters at 124 Columbia Heights. Okay, so they had other concerns. They had spiritual concerns for growth. Less interest in landmarking. That just wasn't really on the top of their list of things necessarily. And they were firmly planted here, from like headquarters, production facilities, housing. Yes, And there would be great unease, actually, for many years between the Brooklyn Heights Association and the Watchtower. But regardless of their protests, on November 23rd, 1965, the city designated Brooklyn Heights the first ever historic district. I will add, however, that the Watchtower got a fancy new building in 1969. They purchased the Squibb Pharmaceutical Complex on Columbia Heights. Which is actually kind of on the other side of the BQE, right? Yeah. The northern extension of Columbia Heights. Near the dog park over there, essentially. It It is known to all New Yorkers, at least for during a period of time, for its red watchtower neon sign that they put on top of it, which was only recently taken down. And why Uh, was that? Well, because the Jehovah's Witnesses packed their bags and moved out of the neighborhood in 2018, moving out of the old Squibb building and out of most all of their Brooklyn Heights properties. Where did they go? Uh, they moved it to Warwick, actually, upstate. And and their old properties, they sold them at a nice profit? 
They made a nice profit, and also many of them are now being turned into luxury condos. Movie stars are moving in. A few notable names are moving into the neighborhood. The Standish over on Columbia Heights, which was built in 1903, another hotel. They had purchased it, and it was in their possession for many years. Today, you have, like, Matt Damon moving in. You have big movie stars. Matt Damon lives in the Standish? Yes, Now, speaking of actors, remember the last episode, I talked about the old Holy Trinity Church in Montague? That's right. The tallest spire uh, in Brooklyn, a beautiful Gothic revival style church right there by that Chase Bank. Yeah. um, Lefevre. Mm -hmm. Menard Lefevre. Lefevre, Yes. (laughs) Well, that tower, that 275-foot tower... Okay, like the largest tower in Brooklyn, the one that could be seen by sailors as far off in New York Harbor. Mm -hmm. Well, they actually had to dismantle it in 1906 because it was falling apart and masonry was falling off of it. Then flash forward by the 1960s, the congregation of Holy Trinity Church had dissolved. And this was essentially an abandoned church building. So just imagine that sitting here for a decade. Well, the congregation of St. Anne's, which was another Episcopal church in the neighborhood, well, they moved in in 1969. They did a beautiful restoration, and it was here that the arts program, Arts at St. Anne, began in the 1980s. Now, this evolved from classical music programs to some rather avant-garde and theatrical experiences and some of the most interesting musical performances in the city. Happening here in this at church, the newly yeah. named St. Anne's and the Holy Trinity. Yes. It's nice that they took the name. And just put them together, yes. Yeah, as a nice <laughs> homage. So Arts at St. Anne's is producing avant-garde theater and music here. Right, until 2001, when they moved to an old spice factory in Dumbo and renamed themselves St. Anne's Warehouse. And in 2015, they moved to a new stage in an old tobacco warehouse there in Dumbo. I hope they aired it out a little before before they moved in. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's all fancy down there because St. Anne's, the warehouse is sitting in Empire Fulton Ferry Park, which now has a beautiful new neighbor, Brooklyn Bridge Park, which has entirely transformed the Brooklyn waterfront, including those old warehouse buildings that were torn down. It's turned this whole waterfront into a spacious new park, which opened in sections starting in 2010. Which brings us all the way up to today. Mm-hmm. And we've made it through plenty of controversies. But the ghost of Robert Moses, Tom, still haunts us. And let us turn our attention one more time to the area of the BQE under the promenade. In fact, you should really think of the promenade as the lid to this stretch of the BQE. Wouldn't you say that's Uh, one way to describe it? Unfortunately, that means that any improvements that you make to the highway below are going to detriment the promenade above, obviously. And that cantilevered structure um, that was used and so innovative 70 years ago was never designed to withstand the amount of traffic and the weight of those trucks that are going by it, that are using it today. The BQE needs work. It's a total mess. So the Department of Transportation intends to rebuild the expressway at this section, which would temporarily rip up the promenade. 
Originally, How temporarily? Originally, the plan was for several years, actually. So naturally, nobody wants this. There are several alternative proposals on the table, including one circulated by the Brooklyn Heights Association that would involve building a temporary highway just west of the current location. So it would abut a little bit Brooklyn Bridge Park, mm-hmm. just the very back of it. But that would allow work to proceed underneath the promenade without that disturbance. But it sounds like whatever happens, it's going to affect the promenade and yes. people are going to be inconvenienced and probably not very pleased about it. And here's another scavenger hunt for you to go on is walk through the neighborhood and see all of the residents with you know signs of support for the Brooklyn Heights Association or for other plans. Let's just say they're pretty much mostly anti BQE and you know some people are suggesting something else that's even, you know, a little bit more insane. What if we just did away with the BQE entirely? Um, or it could be Doug, you know, look at what they did with the, with the big dig in Boston. Well, that's, a, that's another kind of radical idea, which sounds really good to me. On our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, uh, we will have many images of 20th century Brooklyn Heights, which is very exciting. Many more photos than the last episode. Uh, so check us out there and on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. Thank you for joining us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We say it on every show, but it's true that your support is the foundation Mm -hmm. that this show is built upon. It's the foundation that allows the two of us to devote all of our time to making the Bowery Boys, researching these topics and producing the show. So thank you so much to the more than 800 people who have joined us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. One of the ways we thank you is with a special patron-only podcast called the Bowery Boys Movie Club, where we watch together and talk about famous movies that were filmed and based in New York City. And we talk about their historical accuracy um, and try to have a lot of fun. So join us and join this movie party. And we'd like to give a special shout out to patrons like Dan B., John B., Erica G., and Jim S. and Chris D. from Manhattan, David A., Emily L., and Marcy B. from Brooklyn, Mary Lou C. from Olive Bridge, New York, and Deborah and Larry W. from California. Thank you so much, patrons. And Greg, thank you or thank your voice for oh putting goodness. up with this. <laughs> you made it. I can't believe uh, it's still with me. <laughs> well, I, I hope to be back in, full, in a full-throated uh, vocal fullness in the next episode. <laughs> so thank you for joining us on this two-part romp through the history of Brooklyn Heights. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.